I'm Dr. Zyrus. He's a dermatology resident, residency director of the Ohio State University, runs a major contact dermatitis center and specializes in patients with difficult to treat dermatitis, pruritus, or other cutaneous symptoms who are referred to him from dermatologists and allergists. Exactly. And I look forward to hearing your talk. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, so whenever I um, you know, am sort of asked to give a talk and have some leeway about what the topic's going to be, I like to think about what is stuff that um, people have trouble with. Um, and, and people in general, meaning pretty much every dermatologist I've ever met, every practitioner in dermatology, um, everybody. Um, you know, the patients that you're standing outside the room getting ready to go in and you just you know, have a sinking pit in, the, in your stomach and wish you could just skip them and tell your nurse, I'm not gonna be able to help them, just send them on their way. All right, so the itching, burn, and, and in all honesty, I, you know, I'm gonna give you a lot of stuff today that, that at least is stuff that you can try. Um, I will say that a lot of the treatments are probably 50-50 that they'll work. Um, but it's, so first, it's nice to just have stuff where you can at least feel like, okay, I've got something reasonable to try, which can, that can get you out of the room, um, whether they're gonna get better or not, but at least you've got something. And then I'm gonna talk to you a lot about sort of my general approach to these people, all right? So, um, generalized pruritus. So first, you, you know, you walk in, it's basically a pretty normal person um, with pretty normal looking skin, maybe some excoriations that make it kind of difficult to tell if there's a rash or not, but basically fairly normal looking skin. You know, you take a, a medical history, medication history, view assistance, what have they tried, um, and has anything helped? And it, you rarely get anything terribly helpful. You know, your, your medical history, you don't need to delve into everything that's ever happened. Basically, do you have any history of kidney problems, any history of liver problems, thyroid problems, that kind of stuff? Have you, did you have a blood transfusion in the 1980s? You know, those kinds of things. Things that, that might put them at risk for infectious diseases like HIV or Hep C. Um, but it, you don't have to, to get into a horribly detailed medical history. It, in terms of history about their itching, the things that are worth asking that um, I think can make a difference in how you approach them. Um, number one, do you itch all the time? So literally from the minute you wake up till the minute you go to bed at night, are you itching the whole time? Um, you, you approach that patient a little bit differently and also sort of d distinguish that from, or is it you itch, you know, sometimes, but it's just horribly itchy. But you might, go, you know, you might wake up during the day, you're fine, maybe you itch for an hour during the day, and, and you get two differences. And, and if it's a sort of a temporary itching, still extremely bothersome, but you, you maybe approach that patient a little bit differently, it suggests to you more that there's almost certainly nothing going on that you're gonna be able to identify. Um, whenever it's inter intermittent itch. If it's constant itch, then you're more likely to think, you know, liver disease, kidney disease, cancer, that kind of stuff. If it's, you know, oh, it comes and goes during the course of the day, much less likely. And then if it's somewhat localized. So if it's my upper body itches, my lower body itches, you know, my right arm itches, whatever. If it's a goofy pattern, like my right arm itches or the right side of my body, then you really are thinking about things like a, a stroke. And you can get persistent itch as a manifestation of a stroke. Um, sort of as part of the neurologic stuff that gets knocked out. 
But if, generally, if it's sort of you know, my upper body, my lower body, my trunk, whatever, then again, you're more thinking you're really unlikely to find an etiology. You're not going to find liver disease, kidney disease, an infectious disease, something like that. So then the workup, I, I don't work these people up real, real aggressively. Um, and, and there's literature to back that up, same as in um, patients with chronic urticaria. There's very little lab work that's, that's ever helpful in chronic urticaria. But so what do I do with these people? I do a CBC, I'm looking for iron deficiency. Iron deficiency anemia can cause itch. I'm looking for eosinophilia that might suggest that they've got a parasite uh, or that they're an atopic. If they do have an eosinophilia or they've got some atopic history, I might check an IgE, um, just as kind of, again, a, a marker. If their IgE is through the roof, that might be sort of a trigger to me that they're atopic and I'm just not seeing uh, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of dermatitis yet. LFTs, Hep B and C, BUN, Korea, TSH. Hemoglobin A1C I find to be much more useful than a fasting glucose. Uh, Anti-gliadin antibodies, you can get itching uh, with in sort of a DH type picture without a rash and with a negative biopsy in IF. And then the most important thing as you think about this more is anything suggested by the review of systems. And so if you're asking them questions and they have dental pain or they have you know, frequent urination or you, know, you might check a UA, um, anything you find in review of systems to target specific infectious workup or to target a malignancy workup. Um, so I don't CT scan these people from head to toe. Um, and in the literature on generalized pruritus, about 15% of them, you'll find a cause. A lot of times they come in with a cause, and so that's all comers. So if people come in with a known, I'm a dialysis patient and I'm itchy, that counts as a generalized pruritus patient in whom you found a cause. And so, but the, the number of people who will come in and just, hi, I'm itchy, and as far as I know, I'm healthy, and there's no good reason, it's probably like 2% in my experience that you'll find a cause. But it's still worth, kind of, it's still worth looking. Cancer, you know, age appropriate, consider a chest x-ray, feel for lymph nodes, you know, thinking about is there a lymphoma, the chest x-ray, because Hodgkin's lymphoma, as you guys know, relatively frequently presents with pruritus, um, but I don't go fishing. You know, I don't just, just, I don't just scan them from head to toe. So then, while I'm waiting for the labs to come back, um, and, and I talk about this every time I lecture, so if, if, I'm sure a lot of you have heard it before, if you, if you haven't heard it. Now, I, I do, uh, work with Coria, so I have some conflict of interest there, but this is just a, a spectacularly effective um, therapy for just a, when you're treating wide areas. And the way that I write this script uh, is the same every time. So the script is 50 mLs of clobetazole solution, uh, and then the directions say mix into 16-ounce jar of CeraVe cream, apply twice daily as needed. And what I tell the patient is take this to the pharmacy, ask them if they can compound it for you, and some insurances will cover compounding, some won't. If they'll cover the compounding, then they'll get this for a generic copay, five bucks. If, they, if their insurance doesn't cover compounding, the patient mixes it up themselves. So they get the clobetazole for five bucks, buy the jar of CeraVe, take it home, pour the clobetazole into the CeraVe, mix it up with a spoon. The camphophenic antiseptic liquid has camphor and phenol. That's more effective than Sarna. It's very similar to Sarna, which has camphor and menthol, but it's more effective. So the phenol is more effective than the menthol. Um, and so that's really useful uh, as, an, as a sort of a nonspecific antipyritic. Get them to sleep. So, and we're going to talk some more about um, therapy to help people sleep. Um, but Zol I, I probably use more Zolpidem, which is Ambien, um, than I do almost anything else. Uh, Doxepin and hydroxyzine, you know, you give an antihistamine. That generally doesn't help. 
But so, it, and if you find a cause, you send them to the right person, right? So you're, you're sort of excited, right? You get your labs back, oh, it's hepatitis C, great, I'm gonna send you to hepatology. You know, you've got renal failure, you've got thyroid disease, whatever, you send them to that other person. The, the thing to not get overly excited about is the itching still belongs to you, which is very disappointing. You're sort of hoping like, oh, great, it's hepatitis C, send them, they're done. Send them to the, to the hepatologist, I don't have to see them again. No, the hepatologist isn't gonna, isn't gonna address the itching and they're probably gonna keep itching even as they get treated, as they get their renal disease treated, their thyroid disease, whatever. So it's still up to you to treat the itching in, in most cases, all right? So then the, the itch of liver disease. Um, and we used to, I used to see a fair amount of this when I was in Pittsburgh. We had a, lot of, we had a big liver transplant um, population there. Um, the probably thing that I saw the most effectiveness was the sertraline, which is Zoloft. And, and to a significant extent, that's a, a matter of tolerability. So the cholesterol, the idea there is it binds bile salts um, in the intestines and then you, it's sort of you excrete them whenever you have bowel movements. It's just really hard for people to tolerate. There are these big, really awful tasting wafers that you have to eat uh, and they don't work well. Rifampicin, uh, that induces uh, cytochrome P450, so it sort of upregulates your liver's um, capacity to break stuff down. Also used a lot as, as an antibiotic, has a lot of drug interactions is the big problem. Now, trexone, um, people just don't tolerate that well. So now trexone blocks your endogenous opioid uh, activity. Your endogenous opioid activity makes you feel good. It, it's sort of relaxing, gives you a sense of just well-being, and so people feel lousy on naltrexone. Sertraline and Zoloft, and, and people tend to tolerate that very well. That's probably the, the first line thing that I go to if I'm dealing with a, an itch of liver disease. The itch of renal failure, you try moisturizers, sarna, sarna sensitive, very nonspecific stuff, usually doesn't do a whole lot. Doxepin singular, again, maybe you're kind of sedating them with the doxepin. Mirtazapine actually works fairly well. It, it, it is, um, I sort of talked about that a lot of these work about 50% of the time, and the mirtazapine maybe works a little more than 50% of the time. So the other name for mirtazapine is Remeron. It's sort of an atypical SSRI slash SNRI. Um, it is very sedating, so it really does help people sleep, and it has pretty good antipyretic effects. Um, and so you'll get a fair number of people who can, toler who can tolerate it and who it really benefits their itch. The biggest problem with mirtazapine is it tends to cause weight gain. And so patients really hate anything that causes weight gain. As a general rule, most of them would rather have itching and possibly death rather than gain 30 pounds. Um, and so, you, you know, if, if you want them to take the mirtazapine, you don't tell them about the weight gain. Um, and you're, you're, it's extremely unlikely you're ever going to get, you know, sued for the side effect if somebody gains some weight. Um, it's not a dangerous side effect. It's more an annoying one. Um, so the mirtazapine is actually fairly effective. Gabapentin I use a lot. And with, whenever you're using it for um, renal patients, you have them take it right after dialysis because it does get removed whenever they get dialysis. Now, trexone and then butorphanol. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about butorphanol as we go a little bit further. But so butorphanol is a nasal spray that's typically used for migraine headaches. It is a, it's sort of an interesting narcotic. So, I, and I always get them backwards. I want to say that it um, activates the mu receptor and blocks the kappa receptor, but I, I often get things backwards whenever it's one or the other, so it may be that it activates the kappa and blocks the mu, I'm not sure. But the idea is it, the one that it blocks is the one that's associated with addiction and the one that's associated with itching. 
the one that it activates is actually the one that has an antipyritic effect. And so this should be a fantastic itch drug. And I've had good success with butorphanol in some of my really miserable, can't tolerate anything else patients. The biggest problem with butorphanol, it does have some sort of dependency addiction potential. And so it's a little bit like prescribing a chronic narcotic. And so you have to be selective about who you write it for. If you've got a patient that you're in any way nervous that they have sort of an addictive tendency um, or possibly a drug seeker or something like that, you do not want to give them butorphanol. But if it's somebody who's a, a re reliable, dependable, you know, upstanding person, you're not going to get in trouble with the butorphanol. And it's one spray twice a day, really no side effects. Um, you know, I, I usually will have people start it on a Friday or Saturday, tell them to start it on a weekend when they, they're not going to have to do a whole lot so that if it does kind of make them loopy, it's not going to be, you know, a big problem with going to work and that stuff. So cancer-associated itch, lymphoma, leukemia, the SSRIs have by far the, the best sort of studies in association with this. So um, Zoloft, Paxil, Remeron, uh, all three of them, very safe, very well tolerated. Now, it's an interesting discussion that I get into with both my residents and with other uh, providers about prescribing SSRIs. So I've talked to dermatologists and to residents of mine who say, you know, we're dermatologists. We're not qualified to prescribe SSRIs. Um, you know, we're not trained in, in treating mental illness. And that is just absolutely insane. It is absolutely insane for any medical provider to say, it's not appropriate for me to prescribe an SSRI. Compared with a lot of the other stuff that we prescribe, so in terms of safety, SSRIs are orders of magnitude safer than minocycline. Um, you know, with minocycline, you get people with, I have people with, who have had pseudotumor cerebri, who've had hypersensitivity reactions for which they got hospitalized. Um, you know, it's a, these are extremely safe drugs. Now, I don't use them if somebody, you know, if somebody comes in and they're clinically depressed. You know, they're, they have a depressed affect. Um, I, I won't use it as treatment for, as an antidepressant, because then you do have more, you're taking on treatment of the depression. And I, I would say I'm not qualified to treat major depressive disorder. You know, if I start prescribing for that and somebody goes and commits suicide or something like that, do, I really don't have a leg to stand on. But that's only a risk in somebody with major depressive disorder. Whenever you read about suicide being associated with SSRIs, which is the only major side effect that you really need to worry about, it's only in people who are depressed, they get just undepressed enough to have the energy to kill themselves. And, and that's where you get in trouble. And so you, you don't want to treat people who have major depression. You, you only use them as antipyritics, and I use them as anti-anxiety agents, and we'll, we'll talk about that some. So then pritis of unknown origin, this is itch lasting um, six weeks or longer, widespread symmetrical areas, no identifiable etiology. You know, all the stuff that we just talked about are, are reasonable therapies for this. So antipoleptics, so Neurontin. I, I use a lot of Neurontin. Um, Probably the regimen that I like best at this point is to start through, so I, I've done a lot of different things over the years in terms of start at 100 QHS, then go for three days, then 100 BID for three days, then 100 TID, then 200 QHS, 100 in the morning, 100, and these in, incredibly complicated schemes that I don't believe any patient has ever actually followed. Um, so now what I tend to do is 300 milligrams QHS, um, and then I'll go to 600 QHS, and then I'll go to 600 BID, and then I'll go to 600 TID. Um, if I get them up to 1,800 a day, and I'm not really having any efficacy, then I will sometimes continue to push that up to, to a maximum of 3,600 a day. But it's, 
it, you start to get a lot of side effects. Um, people do not tolerate it. It's an incredibly safe drug, but people don't tolerate it very well. So you get a lot of leg edema, uh, and then you also get just feeling kind of lousy. Headaches, sedation, dizziness, ringing in the ears, all those kinds of things. And so it's, it's difficult for people to tolerate at higher doses. The, what I will tell them as I'm prescribing it is keep increasing your dose every three days until either your itching gets better or until you get a side effect that you can't stand. Once you get a side effect, you can't stand back down for one, for one dose and stay at that dose until you come back to see me. Because sometimes you'll get a little bit of a delayed um, reaction in, in terms of benefit for the itch. And a lot of times you'll get a reduction in itch, not, not where it's better, but where it becomes much more tolerable. So then topiramate, Topamax. Um, a little more risk for a serious side effect with Topamax. Now it's not, I, I would never prescribe uh, Lamictal, uh, which is another an anti-epileptic, which gives people a, it's probably the most common cause of TEN that we end up seeing uh, at Ohio State. Um, I wouldn't prescribe Dilantin, um, those kinds of things. But Topamax is actually fairly safe, much better tolerated than is gabapentin. And so with, when I'm prescribing topiramate, now this is, is obviously not first-line therapy. You've tried topicals, you've maybe tried an SSRI, something like that. Now, a, another sort of step back on that, a lot of patients have a big stigma associated with anything that's, a, that's an SSRI. So whenever you're talking to them about it, I, I will often say to them, you know, this is usually used for treating depression. You're not depressed. This works for itching. We're treating you for the itching with this. But anything that is an antidepressant, people are often very hesitant to take because of that stigma. And so often it's much easier for me to get people to take gabapentin or topiramate because they are... Uh, not antidepressive drugs, right? They are anti-epileptic drugs, and there's no, there's no stigma associated with seizures. You know, it's not, it's not like people are thinking that I'm treating them for epilepsy um, and just not telling them. That's what they're always suspecting whenever I'm treating them with an SSRI is that I think they're depressed and I'm just not telling them. All right, so it's, it's often easier to get people in gabapentin or topiramate. And as I said, you stop titrating when the, when the itching gets better or the side effects are intolerable. So then the SSRIs, the two that I typically use, so sertraline is Zoloft, you start 25 milligrams in the morning and titrate up uh, by 25 a week to a maximum of 200 a day, and, and Paxil, start at 10 a day and, and titrate up to 40. Paxil also causes substantial weight gain. So again, if you want people to take it, you may not want to tell them about the weight gain, but it causes usually about a 20 pound weight gain in people uh, by increasing appetite. And so it just, that's the biggest thing with paroxetine. Otherwise, these drugs are both extremely well tolerated. Paroxetine also is fairly good for, for sleep. So it's, it's fairly sedating. So paroxetine I'll have people take at night. Um, sertraline I usually have them take in the morning. It's a little bit activating. And so it, it depends somewhat on you know, what kind of problems the patient's experiencing. But so the Paxil uh, probably has the best literature of the SSRIs as an antipyritic. But because of the weight gain and the sedation, it's sometimes a little harder to tolerate. The SNRIs, so SSRIs, right? Um, serotonin specific reuptake inhibitors. SNRI is serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. All right, so the SNRIs, uh, venlafaxine is a fexor and mirtazapine is remeron. We already talked a little bit about these. Um, so venlafaxine, I started 75 milligrams extended release if their insurance won't cover it, which I've had a couple insurances which won't cover the even generic extended release. Then I'll do 37.5 BID. Um, and I'll end up at a, at a maximum dose of about 150 a day for these people. 
you, you do want to monitor their blood pressure. So about 5 to 10% of people who take Effexor get elevated blood pressure as a side effect. And so I'll just have them stop in CVS or Walgreens and get their blood pressure checked. Mirtazapine, start 7.5 milligrams, titrate up to 15. It's very good for sleep. So it, it is probably as effective, as effective, if not more, than doxepin in terms of making people sleep through the night. Um, again, weight gain is a side effect with mirtazapine. Um, but again, it's, it is a good sort of um, thing to keep in your pocket because it probably has the, the overall best literature on working for itch of any of these drugs. So the general points about SSRIs and SNRIs. The SNRIs I actually like a lot for anxiety. And so you'll see it when you see patients who um, have sort of stress as a driving factor for their skin condition. So whether it's pregonodularis, um, just itching in general, it's making their atopic dermatitis worse, it's making their psoriasis worse. For a lot of those people in whom stress is making their dermatologic problem worse, I will prescribe an SNRI, right? I can't change their life, right? I can't reduce the amount of stress. I can't make their divorce get finalized quicker. I can't make their ex, um, you know, their ex-spouse behave better. I can't make their kids not get the tattoo. I can't do any of that stuff, but I can make them stop caring about any of that stuff. All right, which is a very effective way to approach it. And I used to do this when I, I ran a psoriasis clinic when I was in Pittsburgh, and I would put a lot of my psoriatics on this, because stress does make psoriasis worse. That was my original idea in putting people on it. But I would see a lot of them back, and I learned to not ask them, to not say anything about how their psoriasis was, to ask them. So I'd walk in the room, look at them, the psoriasis is definitely no better. And, but I would always say, so how's your, how do you think your psoriasis is doing? This is the best my psoriasis has been in 20 years. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that it was any better, it was just that they didn't care anymore. And, and that's very, you know, when you're treating a quality of life disorder, that's a very reasonable outcome. Now, you can now make the argument with psoriasis that it's not just quality of life, it does have association with cardiovascular disease, and treating it with TNF-alphas um, can affect that risk. So it's maybe a little different with psoriasis, but with atopic dermatitis, and with other sort of pruritic disorders, you're treating quality of life. And so it's very reasonable to say, you know, I'm gonna treat your reaction to the disease rather than, than focusing completely on getting the disease itself better. SSRIs are, are very good um, if we are just trying to reduce anxiety. And so this is if I'm, you know, somebody who's itchy and very stressed, I do more of the SNRIs. I think the SSRIs have a, a, a little bit better tolerability. And so if I'm just treating anxiety, so maybe it's an acne patient, and I, I will treat stress and anxiety in anybody that I think it's affecting their dermatologic condition. Because in that setting, like I said, I'm not treating you know, severe anxiety disorder, I'm not treating depression, I'm treating their skin because I'm treating a thing that is making their skin disease worse, right? If I can get their stress down, if I can get their endogenous cortisol level down, if I can change their neuroimmunocutaneous axis, it often can make a big difference in their skin disease. Um, you don't want to stop these drugs immediately. People will feel lousy. It's not dangerous, but they'll feel lousy. So I usually step down the dose one a week until I get to the lowest dose. If they're already on the lowest dose, you can just stop it. Um, and I, like I said, I don't treat people who are actually depressed. It's just, it's not something that, that is a population that I think is one that we want to get into. So then pruritus of unknown origin, the, the other ones that I use here, doxepin, 10 milligrams to 25 QHS to start, 
You can titrate up probably a maximum of 100 milligrams a day before you get overly worried about side effects. The thing that just is shocking to me every time I think about this, doxepin is used by people in dermatology like water, right? So everybody who comes in itchy gets doxepin. Of all the drugs that I am talking about today, doxepin is the, probably the most dangerous, has the most side effects and is the most dangerous. It's why it's not used for depression anymore, because it was too risky. It had too many side effects, too many cardiac effects, too many anticholinergic effects. That's the problem with doxepin, but yet in dermatology we feel like, oh, doxepin, that's, you know, I, but if I say to a group of dermatologists, you know, why don't you try prescribing, you know, Paxil? Oh, my, I'm not, that's too dangerous, and I, it, it just doesn't make any sense. It, doxepin is, is a risky drug. So then amitriptyline, 10 to 40 milligrams a day, is probably better tolerated than doxepin. Also has very good antihistaminic effects, just like doxepin does. And then clonazepam. So this is a benzodiazepine. It is DEA regulated, but I'll, I will also use this sometimes for people who have uh, significant anxiety as part of their dermatosis. I also use a fair amount of, well we'll, well, we'll talk about the other places where I think that these are helpful besides just in general itching. But they, they really can be helpful, again, in those people who are just very anxious and you feel like that's part of the driving factor for their itch. So then the butorphanol nasal spray, as I talked about, there's some abuse potential. And so you've got to warn the patient about that, and you've got to be a little bit careful about who you prescribe it to. Um, but in general, it's an incredibly safe medication. Um, and then now Trexone, people feel lousy on it. I will occasionally use carbamazepine, which is Tegretol. Um, that's certainly after Neurontin or Gabapentin and Topiramate for me. Um, carbamazepine is, a, to me, a little bit riskier. I do see some people who get bad drug reactions on carbamazepine, so I'm a little less likely to, to, to give people that drug. So the narrowband UVB, it's effective and it's safe for almost any cause of itching, especially liver itch and renal itch. It's not as effective as, as you are led to believe it is. And so there was just a study, so I've always thought of this as treatment of choice for renal itch. And there was just a, a nice study that was done looking at narrowband UVB for uh, hemodialysis patients, and it was not very effective at all, uh, which was very surprising. I think of it as, as the treatment of choice for those people. But for all of your itch, anybody who's itchy, if, you, if they can come in for narrowband UVB, it's worth a shot. Now, usually this is pretty much limited to people who are retired because normal people can't get off work two or three times a week to come into the, to the office. But anybody who can come in for phototherapy, this, this can be very useful. So then localized syndromes. So these are, are we're getting into a, now an area that I just absolutely love these patients. All right, now, it, and I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm probably the only dermatologist in Ohio who actually likes them. But it's, you, it's a matter of my general approach to them um, is to step back and look at them almost as if I'm watching an interview on television. Like just to, I like to sit, like let them tell their story, ask them questions to keep telling it. And, and you've got to schedule these people right. So if, if I would schedule them for like the last patient before uh, you break for lunch, the last patient of the day on a day when you don't get, have to get out of the office right away, schedule 15, 20 minutes to just listen. And it's just, it, it can be really entertaining if you just, you, literally you just step back and you're listening, you know, you what, so what's, what, what did you do then? What did your friend tell you to do? You know, what, how, you know, all the stuff that they've tried and the, but you have to step back and just sort of, you're not listening to it as a, you know, well, you shouldn't have done that, that wouldn't have worked, and trying to think you have to have it, just as a, wow, this is, this is crazy. I can't believe that, like, I'm getting to hear this. Now, you gotta, you can't laugh, 
right, obviously. Um, but you just listen, and it's really therapeutic for them to just have a chance to have somebody listen and sort of take them seriously and not try and tell them, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have done that. No, you know, it's not that, it's, it, that isn't causing it. Just to let them tell their story, okay? I, I, and I love that aspect of just listening to how people think and the explanations they've come up with internally to explain their symptoms. Um, it's just fascinating. But so the special areas, and so whenever you think about these localized syndromes, um, you know, there's burning mouth, burning scalp, burning vulva, burning scrotum. What's always interesting to me about that is these are all proximal and midline, um, which to me, you know, is sort of the relationship that they all have to each other. These are all proximal midline things, and I think of this as a CNS problem um, with processing of sensory input. And the way that I'll often explain it to patients is it's a lot like the volume knob on your radio, where normally your brain, um, you're getting way more input from your sensory system than you could ever actually pay attention to, right? So as we're all sitting here, you're not aware of the position of your feet, the position of your knees, the position of your hips. You're not aware of the way your clothes, you're not consciously aware of the way your clothes all feel. You're not consciously aware of the feeling of air flowing in and out of your nose. You're not consciously aware of every sound that you're hearing. We, one of the things that makes us able to function in a three-dimensional world is the ability to focus our attention. To, to block out everything else and pay attention to one thing and not be aware of everything else. If you lose that ability for a certain part of your body, you then start to develop these types of symptoms. And that's what I really believe happens in these people. And I'll often explain it as, it's like you're, you're, you can think of yourself as listening to something on the radio. And you're trying to hear, there's one voice, your brain's trying to hear one voice in a, um, sort of in a crowd that's being, you know, there's a microphone, and just keeps turning that volume up louder and louder and louder until maybe, it, you know, you can hear that voice eventually, but the, the sound is just deafening and is hurting your ears. It, it's that kind of a situation. Your, tur your brain's turning up the volume. It's listening harder and harder and harder, and so it's detecting more and more and more input. So those are the, the localized ones that are central and proximal, and then you've got your peripheral ones that tend to be much more intermittent. So natalgia brachioradial pruritus, these are more nerve compression things. So a, a peripheral nerve where you're getting irritation of that nerve itself, okay? So first, the, the, the special areas. The burning mouth, over 90% women, they are absolutely miserable whenever they walk into your office. They are generally worried they have cancer. Um, and this is, a, the thing that you can ask here that often makes the patient go, oh my God, you're right is did you, prior to going through menopause, did you have a very strong sense of smell? And the first time I ever asked, I read this in a, you know, an article about the pathophysiology, the first time I ever asked a woman that, and who had burning mouth, she said, oh my God, I saved someone's life once. You know, there was a natural gas leak and she was the only person who smelled it. All right, so, it, it, and the thinking here is that, that kind of turning up the volume idea, when you go through menopause, your um, taste ability goes down. And your brain is looking for a certain level of input from your oral cavity. And whenever it doesn't get that input, and, and the olfactory and, and the oral sensation are very similar, um, so when it doesn't get that level of input that it's expecting from your oral cavity, it starts to turn up the volume listening more. And as it listens more, you start to get burning mouth syndrome. 
And so it's, it's as you lose your taste ability, your brain is trying to increase its ability to, to pick up neural input from your, from your mouth. So how do I treat these people? So number one, 2% viscous lidocaine, um, swish and spit. You can do this very frequently. It, it offers some short-term relief in a lot of these patients. and some of them, it doesn't do much at all, which is why you know, I, I think of this more as a problem with central processing than I do as a problem with the peripheral nerves. And so if it was a problem with the peripheral nerves, lidocaine would work great. If it's central processing, lidocaine doesn't work quite as well. But it, it often does alpha, offer some short-term relief. Alpha-lipoic acid, this is a vitamin. And there's actually a few studies showing it works really well. Uh, you, you just Google it, alpha-lipoic acid. You know, they'll come up plenty of places you can buy it from. 600 milligrams uh, a day, and that's fairly effective. Capsaicin, and, and capsaicin for all of these conditions is something that I really find to be the most effective thing once you can get people to tolerate it. Now, you know, the first thing people usually think whenever I talk about using capsaicin for burning mouth is, oh my God, is it safe to put capsaicin cream in your mouth? No, you tell people to go buy jalapeno peppers and they're gonna eat a jalapeno pepper three times a day. And, and it's exact, you know, capsaicin is the active ingredient in capsaicin pepper, in jalapeno peppers. The idea being the same thing, if you can deplete their substance P, it actually works very well. And so you, you tell them, I want you to get the hottest pepper you can possibly stand. I want you to eat three of them a day, every day. Um, it's gonna burn horribly whenever you eat it. It's gonna feel a lot worse. But then after a few days of eating this three times a day, your mouth's gonna start to feel a lot better. Um, it's hard for people to tolerate those first few days, but it works. Um, so just a, the, hottest, the hottest pepper they can stand three times a day. Um, and, and it really is very effective for the burning mouth patients. The antileptics, SSRIs, SNRIs, I use a lot of clonazepam here. Um, there was a, a nice article probably five, ten years ago that talked about using clonazepam uh, for burning mouth syndrome, and, and I do find that it, that it helps with the symptoms. Doesn't make it better, but does make it more tolerable. And then I've never used it, but there was a, a nice, I think, two case reports about using olanzapine, um, which is Zyprexa. It's one of the new um, anti-schizophrenic drugs and it, it had very good efficacy in these two case reports. Now that, usually if there's two case reports, that means there's 200 cases in which it did not work. But we know that it at least occasionally did something in somebody. But so the, the capsaicin and the alpha-lipoic acid are probably the two things that I've seen um, the most success with, with burning mouth. So then burning scalp, again, mostly women. These people often come in with small, excoriated follicular things. So they, they often come in, they'll have these little sores in their scalp, you know, they'll have two or three or four. Um, you treat them usually as folliculitis and it doesn't help. So you put them on, on doxycycline, you put them on minocycline, you try cephalexin, you culture it, it usually grows staph. But antibiotics just don't help. And they complain about this excruciating pain associated with these little um, excoriated erosions in their scalp. I think of this, um, a lot as the same way that I think about Pirago nodularis. Um, and I find it very, very difficult to treat. So you rule out actual folliculitis um, if they have the little excoriated lesions. Some of them don't have the excoriated lesions, they just have a totally normal looking scalp. And then again, try and treat them with the same stuff, SSRIs, SNRIs, doxepin. Um, intralesional injections sometimes help. I've had a couple of people in whom capsaicin solution. And so if you go to the drugstore, you can get capsaicin solution 0.15%. Um, and have them use it on their scalp. And I've had several patients in whom that really worked extremely well. Now, when you're prescribing capsaicin, there's a very sort of specific routine that I go through with the patient. So, um, you know, first we talk about it, and usually we've tr they've tried a couple other things. 
Um, and I tell them, look, I've got something that will absolutely work really well for you. Um, now, here's the thing. You're going to put this on, and if we're really, if we're really fortunate, what we're really hoping for is you're going to put it on and it's going to burn like crazy. The more that it burns, the more it hurts, the better it's working, and the more we know it's going to work great. And so you, you have to frame it to them as that burning is what we want. It's going to work. It's going to make this better. They're going to do well because it's burning. You're going to have that burning for about a half hour to 45 minutes when you put it on each time the first two or three days. Then it's going to go away, and then you're going to feel better. And then you're going to keep putting it on a couple times a day. As long as you do that, it, the pain or the itching won't come back. And if you put it that way, if you tell them, you know, you're going to use this, um, it might, and a lot of people, it burns. Um, just try and put up with that for the first two or three days. They're not going to be able to tolerate it. If you tell them, you know, put it on, I'm hoping it's going to really burn horribly. Um, the more it burns, the better. And if it burns too much, so if you, and I will also tell them if you can't tolerate it, dilute it. So, you know, put it on, you know, at 100% concentration initially. If you just can't stand that, you know, mix it 50-50 with um, moisturizer. If you can't do that, then do one part capsaicin, three parts moisturizer. If you can't do that, one part capsaicin, six parts moisturizer. And they don't have to measure it out. It's just, you know, you put a little bit of the capsaicin and then you put moisturizer next to it and you mix the two together. So they can keep diluting it down until they find a concentration where it burns. And if it's not burning, it's not working. But so you give them that, just keep diluting it down until you find a concentration where it burns, but it's tolerable. And then try and slowly work that concentration up to where if, you, if it ends up being one to three, you get the, once you start to tolerate it well, you go to one to two, then you try and work up to one to one. So capsaicin is, for all of these localized syndromes, is just extremely effective. Um, the lidocaine solution, again, burning vulva. I, I will always treat these people for yeast infections. Even if there's no evidence of a yeast, I will still give them something like Diflucan one a week for you know, six weeks maybe, just to see if there's a subclinical yeast infection that's driving it. And so I think it's worth treating these, these women who come in with vulvar symptoms I will try an antihistamine because it can be a manifestation of symptomatic dermographism. So symptomatic dermographism, your mast cells become really sensitive to pressure. And so whenever people are walking, uh, whenever they're wearing you know, tight pants, underwear, whatever, you can get mast cell degranulation and that can cause itching and pain, which can you know, present as burning vulva. You want to avoid benzocaine, but you can prescribe lidocaine ointment. Benzocaine, you want to avoid it because there's a, a high propensity for patients to become addicted to benzocaine. And I've had two patients over the years, they end up applying benzocaine usually about every 20 minutes, um, all day long. At night, they're waking up every 20 minutes to apply the benzocaine. Um, if they stop applying it, it becomes so painful that it becomes suicidal. The patients that I've had with this, the first thing that you try and do with them, um, you know, I've tried high-dose prednisone, because then they do start to get a rash from the benzocaine. So I've tried high-dose prednisone, switching them to lidocaine, um, the anti-epileptics that we talked about, eventually I had to send them to get somebody to admit them and sedate them for a couple days so that we could stop the benzocaine, and then they were able to continue without it after we broke the addiction. But so you want to you avoid benzocaine, but lidocaine absolutely can be useful. And then relatively high doses of the SSRIs. We talked about titrating up on paroxetine and sertraline. So maximum dose of paroxetine is about 40. Maximum dose of sertraline is about 200. With both of those, I often will get up to that full dose if I'm treating um, the burning vulva. And, and it often takes that higher dose to work in these patients. So then burning scrotum, number one, keep it dry. 
Um, a lot of what you see in this is, ends up being a symptom of just moisture from sweating and from the area just being friction. I have, I have them all use um, briefs, so no boxer shorts, no boxer briefs. I want briefs so that that seam is up in the inguinal fold separating the scrotum from the thighs. Uh, I have them use antiperspirant spray, so if, they, if the spray doesn't work well enough, they can, I, I don't have a problem with them using a gel. So, you know, like the, the antiperspirant gels, you just, you know, turn the little knob, some comes out, you put it on your hand and then you rub it into the creases. Um, and then rinse with water during the day. If they're still getting moisture during the day, um, you know, have them go in the bathroom at work and just splash some water on it and dry with a paper towel. So you want to keep the area very dry. I use topical lidocaine, sarna, and sarna sensitive. Um, capsaicin I have never used. I don't use capsaicin in the vulva and the scrotum. Just too much of a, I just can't imagine that as being tolerable. Just can't. There are too many movies that involve that. Um, so then, the, but the SSRIs and the SNRIs for this also. And if it's a, if it's a man and he is um, in a relationship, um, meaning he's married, he's engaged, he has a long-term partner, whatever, very often if they come in with genital symptoms, and I was told it's 90% when I was a resident, that's not based on any fact, but it, it, this is relatively common. Try and gently explore if there is some sexual activity that they are feeling guilty about. Um, if, at a minimum, ask them if they're worried about, you know, are you worried this might be an infection, some kind of sexually transmitted disease? That's often sort of a good springboard to ask, rather than say, you know, have you been doing something you're not supposed to be doing? <laughs> you know, more, you, you know, have you, you know, are you worried this is an infection? And often they'll be like, well, you know, um, you know, three months ago we had our high school reunion and, but you know, whatever the story is. And again, that's when I'm popping back and I'm watching somebody on TV, just because it's now going to be a long discussion. Um, but it at least gets you to understand, okay, here's what's going on here. I need to, we need to try and, and focus on maybe getting them to see a therapist, seeing a, a psychologist. And the, the key to that, don't ever tell anybody that you think that they're, um, brain is causing their skin problem, okay? So it is, a, if they bring it up first, so if they're like, okay, I think stress is making my eczema worse. Yes, stress is making your eczema worse, we can treat you for that. If they don't think it, so if it's, you know, some kind of a cutaneous symptomatology that you think it's related to a psychological problem, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, history of childhood abuse, whatever, don't ever say to a patient, I think that you're you know, anxiety or whatever is causing this symptom. And so I want you to go see a therapist. They won't do it, okay? No, it's not a problem with that, it's my skin. The, the approach is, you know, I see a lot of patients like you who have this itching, this pain, this, you know, stuff on their skin that just looks so bad and it causes so much anxiety and stress and I see so much depression, it just ruins people's lives. And it, it's actually abnormal, if this isn't really bothering you, it's kind, of, it's kind of abnormal. Now, you don't say that to everybody because it isn't really abnormal. You don't want to make normal people feel bad, right? But if you, you know, it would be kind of abnormal if this wasn't really bothering you. I, you know, I think it would really help um, you know, for you to go and, and see a therapist and talk to them about this because this kind of a skin problem just may, I've seen so many people get so depressed and be so um, upset about this. So you're not telling them that their brain is causing a problem with their skin. You're telling them their skin is causing a problem with their brain. 
And that's a lot easier for patients to accept without a stigma. There's such a stigma still with going to see a therapist or, or something being psychological. So brachioradial pruritus and talgia parasthetica. So right, brachioradial pruritus, um, itching and burning on the forearms, often associated with sun exposure, it gets worse. And then uh, natalgia parasthetica, itchy spot on the back, sort of right at the point of the shoulder blade. These are both more nerve impingement. So in natalgia parasthetica, it's nerve impingement as it comes out of the cervical neck. In, uh, in, in I'm sorry, natalgia parasthetica, it's an impingement as the small fiber is penetrating up through the muscle layers on the back. Um, there's a, a, a nerve that basically comes out of your spine and loops right back up, and it has to penetrate through two muscle layers. And so there are two muscle layers that are sort of contracting in different directions, and that can cause an impingement of that nerve and cause localized itching right there. Um, the only things that I've really had much success with, sometimes I'll do cryotherapy on the spot, um, and that gives them some relief for, for quite a long period of time. Um, I will do a lot of capsaicin if they have somebody who can put it on. As long as they keep using the capsaicin, it will work um, extremely effectively, but they, they have to keep using it two or three times a day. Other than those two things, there hasn't been a lot that I've had much success with for natalgia, per, for natalgia parasthetica. For brachioradial pruritus, it can be helpful to get a neck x-ray or an MRI. The problem is you're never gonna send these people to get neurosurgery to release the impingement um, in their neck to help the itching on their arms. It's just not worth the surgery to go through that, but it can give you an answer to give them um, about what's going on. Capsaicin works fabulous for this. Um, you know, and again, the more it burns, the better. You wanna, you know, the minimum, the, the maximum amount that you can tolerate, um, and then you slowly work your way up. Anti-epileptics, so meaning gabapentin primarily, and I didn't really talk about it, but Lyrica is the other anti-epileptic that is very similar to gabapentin, but better side effect profile. Problem with Lyrica, it's brand name, so often it's really hard to get it covered. But Lyrica, which is pre-Gabalin, is very similar to Gabapentin in terms of everything I said about Gabapentin would also apply to, to pre-Gabalin or Lyrica. All right, so now some, some actual pictures. So what is this? Anybody? What? Right, so this is Parigonodularis, right? So nice. Um, you know, red, hyperkeratotic, a little bit violaceous, very discreet, a little bit of inflammation around them, right? So prigonodularis, this is prigonodularis in a bad location, right? Nice spot right here in the middle of this high school kid's forehead. And then sort of widespread prigonodularis, and this was the best, people talk about the butterfly sign. So anytime that you're concerned that a particular um, finding is due to somebody scratching, you look at their upper middle back the places where you can't reach, right? Going like this. And if they're flexible enough, they can reach. But so this woman had just a great butterfly sign, right? So all of her skin everywhere else is like kenified and has just thousands of these parigonodules, right? So whenever you're dealing with parigonodularis, the big areas you tend to see it, extensor surfaces of the arms and legs, the upper back can be localized. So in some people, it's just one forearm, both forearms, the shin, those being the, the areas that I see the most localized parigonodularis, only the lesions itch. So that's one of the, the key things you want to ask about. Are you itchy everywhere, or is it just the spots themselves that itch? And so the reason you're asking that, parigonodularis can be something that they have just parigonodularis with no underlying cause, or it could be they have eczema, usually, it's a, usually eczema slash atopic dermatitis, that they're getting parigonodularis as a secondary thing. 
and you treat those two things very differently. In the, in the one where it's atopic dermatitis with pruriginodularis, you've got to treat the atopic dermatitis with the same way that we always treat atopic dermatitis. If you're treating just pruriginodularis, you, you treat it differently. They will almost always give you the story that it starts, and so I will always ask them, does it, when you get a new one, is the first thing you notice itching, or is the first thing you notice a bump? And they're like, well, I don't, I don't know. And, okay, so I, I want you to pay attention. The next time you get one of these, the first time you feel an itch, whenever you touch that spot, is there already a bump there, or is it just there's an itchy, tingling, whatever spot? Um, I haven't figured out exactly yet what to do with this information, but the patient finds it interesting to try and figure it out, all right? So I know you were expecting some like, and so if it's before you get the bump, you're going to know. So the, the, the thing that's useful there, um, if they talk about there's a bump right whenever it starts, okay, that makes the patient believe it's not just a manifestation of itching. It is a manifestation still of itching. What nerve endings we now know release neuropeptides. So substance P, which capsaicin works by causing substance P release from nerve endings. And then if you release enough substance P, the nerve endings get depleted. So substance P is one neuropeptide, causes pain and inflammation. There are a bunch of other neuropeptides that nerve endings release, and then they cause inflammation. And so you can get a little red bump from the nerve ending releasing neuropeptides that drive inflammation. So if there's a little red bump to start with, you, you don't, that doesn't take you away from thinking that it's, that it's a pyrigonodularis episode. So it, they, and they'll often talk about, you know, it's a little red bump and then a little fluid comes out of it. Patients as a general rule, believe that the fact that something is releasing fluid is excruciatingly important. Every patient who has anything, it's, it's if we get this and then fluid comes out. It's clear fluid, it's white fluid, it's yellow fluid, it's whatever, but the, the details about that fluid are exceptionally important. It's much like mothers and babies poop, right? What's the baby's poop look like? It's very important. All right, so pregonodularis, it's been shown over and over again, there's an abnormal number and morphology of nerve endings. So the cutaneous nerve endings grow um, they divide, they become abnormal in the way they look and abnormal in the way they function. And so, the, the, like I said, that initial lesion is probably due to neurogenic inflammation, and the growth of lesions is due to those nerve endings release um, substances that drive keratinocyte hyperproliferation. Don't be afraid to make the diagnosis. People are, I, I can't, you know, there, there are a lot of patients that I see who are sent by, you know, other derms, by PAs in town, who, you know, it's, they clearly have pregonodularis. I'm sure that the person seeing them knows about pregonodularis, but people sort of don't like to make this diagnosis. Don't be afraid to make the diagnosis. I usually will do a biopsy if it hasn't been biopsied before to rule out hypertrophic lichen planus and to rule out there's a, 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 a pruigopemphagoides, um, which is pregonodularis that is really a manifestation of pemphigoid. And so I will often do a biopsy and an IF on these if it hasn't been done already, just to make sure I'm not missing something. And it, and it helps the patient as well to know that you didn't just say, okay, this is from, this is a, a neurologic problem in your skin. You're actually looking to make sure there isn't something else going on. Treatment, phototherapy, and so the same stuff that we've talked about. If they have a small number of lesions, so if they have 10 or less usually is the number for me, cryotherapy works great. So you cryotherapy the lesion a little bit harder than you would cryo a actinic keratosis. You want to do cryo enough so that you freeze the whole thing, um, and then you do a second round of cryotherapy. So usually that's about a 10-second freeze, then another 10-second freeze. It'll blister, scab, and then fall off, and usually that will get rid of it. So if they have 10 or fewer lesions, and it is just the lesions itch, the surrounding skin doesn't itch, cryotherapy actually works great. Capsaicin, if it's localized, 
uh, works great. And then again, the CeraVe with clobetazole and Campofenique. Um, if it's more of a, they're itchy all over, uh, or they can't, t you know, it's sort of a regional itch that can be very effective. All right, so next person. So we're looking at her left side and her right side. So what does this woman have? What? So we've got neurotic excoriations. I will agree this is a form of neurotic excoriations, a specific type. So I heard somebody say trigeminal. Yes, so this is trigeminal trophic syndrome. And so this woman had had a um, hemifacial pain, well, I can't remember what the heck it's called, but where they get excruciating pain on one side of their face, and so the pain medicine docs will go in and inject alcohol into their uh, Gaussarian or their trigeminal ganglion or their Gaussarian ganglion, some ganglion that's right here. And after they inject that and destroy that ganglion, people can get this trigeminal trophic syndrome on one side of their face where it's all totally self-induced, okay? But you know, you, in this woman, you look at one side, you look at the other, it's obvious that there's something going on. Now she did have this history if she'd had the, the injection to destroy the ganglion and then this all started. This is a little bit more advanced. And the way that I'll usually end up seeing these people is either as a hospital consult or as an outpatient consult, and they've had you know, nine biopsies because people are convinced this is skin cancer, right? It's a basal cell or a squamous cell that's just eroding away the nose. So they get biopsy after biopsy that shows scar, granulation tissue, that kind of stuff, but no pathology, and they just keep doing it. Now, if, you, if, if we could put these people in elbow braces so they couldn't bend their elbows, they would get better, right? But you can't, and they will never talk about, if you ask them, are you, are you doing this? No, I'm not doing that. Do you do this at all? Do you, no, I don't do it which is just, it seems absolutely crazy, right? And I'm actually getting video cameras installed in all of my exam rooms, more for teaching residents, all right? We're gonna, you know, the patients are gonna know about it and we're gonna, we're gonna tape so that I can talk to the residents about how they um, could do their patient interactions better. But I totally want to turn it on on a lot of these people. So I can leave them in the room for a half hour and watch them go like this, and then come in and be like, are you doing this? No, I'm not doing that. And then show them the video. But I. I'm not gonna do it, but I had a great explanation from a psychiatrist about this once. Uh, we actually had a psychiatrist come and talk to us um, about this dissociative symptoms where people are doing things to themselves that they are not aware of. And so they will vary, if we hooked this woman up to a lie detector test and said, are you doing this? She would say, no, I'm not doing it. If we followed around and taped her 24 hours a day, we would see her doing this. And we could stop her right after she did it and say, are you doing this? And she would say, no, and she would believe that. And, and the easiest way to, and it's really hard to, you know, accept that as you're thinking about it, right? I mean, it's just, how could you not be aware of, of doing that? The example he gave, you, you know, you think of this on a spectrum. Sort of normal dissociative is, have you ever been driving on the highway and you kind of zone out for five minutes? Where you kind of snap back to it, you don't remember the last five minutes necessarily, but you know, you're still on the road, you didn't have an accident, you were still driving fine, you were functioning fine, your brain's sort of on autopilot, but you're just not paying attention to what's going on. That's exactly the same thing, just it's on a spectrum, from that being kind of the normal end to, to the far end being people are actually doing things to their body and they're not aware of it. And they truly are not aware of it. So it's not like, you don't want to think of it in terms of they're lying and if you just ask them the right way or ask them hard enough or you know, put a bright light in their face and yell at them, you're not going to get them to tell you, right? They honestly believe they're not doing it. 
All right, so trigeminal trophic syndrome, any area innervated by a trigeminal nerve, most common is alar rim right here. I just had a guy last, this year actually, it took us about a year to work through the whole thing. He was a guy, of course, didn't have any insurance, had a literally um, a, a, about a two centimeter just notch out of his lip that went from here up to the nose and back down. Just nothing there. He had removed it all. Um, you know, his gums are all, because his, you know, breathing, his gums are drying out, his teeth are good, you know. And of course he had no insurance. We, so we got him on, you know, we put him on an SSRI because he was depressed because of this. That made him feel better. And then we sent him to neurology to get worked up, make sure there wasn't. So the things you have to worry about is anything that's damaged to the trigeminal uh, ganglion. And so it can be that they had a stroke, it can be that they've got a tumor, it can be that they had an injury. Most of the cases I see, there's no identifiable trigger. Um, it was probably they had something in the spectrum of, of almost a Bell's palsy, but they didn't get any of the motor stuff. It just damaged their trigeminal ganglion and you can't really see it um, on imaging or anything else. But so a lot of the cases have no identifiable etiology, but I will usually send them to neurology if they haven't already been seen by neurology just to make sure we're not missing anything. And then the biggest thing that you can do for these people is to have plastics do a flap. And so it depends on where it is exactly, but they can't do a skin flap. So it can't be like a, um, you know, if it's your alar rim, they can't do like the advancement flap where they just bring some skin up from your lip. It has to be a flap that brings in a separate nerve supply that's unrelated. And so for my guy who had this, plastics did an abbey flap, which an abbey flap is something that most surgeons will sometimes do. It's where you take a, a pie-shaped piece out of your lip right here, and then you rotate it up and fill this side in, stitch this together, stitch that together. Now they'll have to walk around like this for six weeks. But then once they walk around for six weeks, you then can sever the connection. And now they've, they've rebuilt this for that guy and he's fine because it brought in nerve and blood supply that was separate from that area. You can't just bring in a flap contiguously though. You have to bring in an, a separately innervated flap, but it really works for these people. Now for somebody like this, that would work really well. For somebody like this, you really can't do anything, right? You can't, you know, bring a whole new half of her face in. So for her, um, you know, I tried lots of different stuff, capsaicin, all kinds of stuff. Um, it ended up the best thing we could find was duoderm. And so we would have her put, you know, cover them with duoderm. They would, as long as she kept them covered, they would heal because she couldn't get to them. Um, and then, you know, they would heal. She would take the duoderm off. She would pick them back open, put the duoderm on. It, at least part of the time, she didn't have them. And, and that was the best we were able to do for her. So trigeminal trophic syndrome. All right, now I need a volunteer for our next topic. Um, now it needs, I need somebody, I actually need two volunteers. Um, somebody who hasn't read, who, who hasn't been reading ahead in the syllabus. So do, do I have any volunteers? All right, I've got two, perfect. All right, you two come on up here for a minute. All right, so let me turn this off for a second. All right. No. Okay, so next, we're gonna talk about delusions of parasitosis, all right? I wanted to show you the two ways that you can approach these patients, all right? So for the purposes of this, so they both, um, are, I told them they both have PMLE, they're gonna come in and, you know, son's giving me this rash, making it bad, okay? We're a room full of highly educated medical providers. No matter what I say, Okay, if I ask you guys, you all are gonna agree with me that the sun does not exist. Okay, there's no such thing as the sun, all right? 
because that is for somebody who has delusions of parasitosis, trying to tell them that the bugs don't exist is absolutely the equivalent of trying to tell any of us that the sun doesn't exist. There's absolute, no matter what evidence you could possibly bring, they're never in a million years gonna believe it, okay? So no matter what, all right, so I'm gonna be the sun doesn't exist. If I ask you guys, anybody here, you know, so guys, everybody here who agrees with me that the sun doesn't exist, put your hand up, okay? All right, somebody tell one of them to come back in. This one. Can we turn on both mics? Does that work? Okay, good. So you get that mic and I get this one. Okay. All right, so first, by the, oh, wait, wait, let me do this. I, I don't have coffee whenever I'm seeing patients. Okay. <laughs> I do. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> All right. Hi, I'm Dr. Zyrus. Hi, how are you? Good. Nice to meet you. What, and I'm sorry, you know, I looked at the chart, but I can't remember what your, you are? Vicki. Vicki Roberts. So Vicki, what's, what's going on? What brings you into the office today? I just, I'm just itching. You're itchy? Yeah, I'm just really, really itchy, and it really seems to happen when I'm out in the sun. When you're out in the sun. Okay, so it's where, what parts of your body? Well, um, let's see, it's usually around my neck and my chest, sometimes my arms. Okay, okay, so... You know, I see a lot of patients like you. I've probably seen 100, 150 patients over, over the years who have this same thing that you have. Um, and the really, it's a hard thing to deal with. Now, I, I'll be able to, there are some things we can do that, that are going to help. But there really, um, there's no such thing as the sun. What's that big bright thing out your window right there? You know, it is so weird that, you know, you ask me that because, you know, I'm going to go out to the, I'm going to go out to the window and, and take a look and see, because I've never, you know, all the patients who've come in with this have said, you know, always say exactly the same thing. I've just, I've never been able to see it. And I, I'm going to go look. Okay. Oop, I go look. Now, normally we know what I would be looking at, right? The microscope. All right, so come back in. I, I looked, I still couldn't see it. I, I don't, I'm not, you know, it just... I'm not crazy. I know there's sun out there. Okay, so I've been to medical school. I've <laughs> been seeing patients for five years. I've seen so hundreds... So you haven't seen the sun because you've had your face in the book. Okay, so, <laughs> you know, it's hard to have a dialogue with a patient when you start to get aggressive like that. All right, uh, I, I, I'm trying to help you. Is there anybody else here that could help me? Um, you know what, I'm the best person to be able to do this. There's really not, I, I take care of most of our patients who have this. So wait, now just let me, so you know, I've been to medical school, I, I went and looked, I couldn't see the sun. Um, you know, fortunately we've got a whole room full of people here who are all very highly educated as well. So how many of you agree with me that there's no such thing as the sun? Okay, so, <laughs> na so now do you agree with me that, that the sun doesn't exist? But my boyfriend thinks there's the sun. He agrees with me. Okay, you know, we're not getting anywhere, so <laughs> I can give you a pill that will make you feel better. But 
It's a pill, it's for people who are crazy, but I, I don't think you're crazy. <laughs> I don't think you're crazy, but the pill happens to be for people who are crazy. You think I'm crazy? No, no, I don't think, I just want to give you a pill for crazy people. But it doesn't, this pill is not, okay, so we can, we can stop yeah. now. All right, thank you very much, Vicki. Okay, so, so that's approach number one whenever you're dealing with delusions of parasitosis people. And sort of my point is that is not the approach that I, that I tend to take with these people because as soon as you start arguing with them or trying to explain to them that the bugs do not exist, it's done. There's no, you cannot get credibility with them, you can't develop a patient-director relationship, you can't, like there, it's done. You're not gonna be able to help them. Now, I am not totally against that approach because it is a very good way to have them not come back. <laughs> All right? So I, I'm not, it, it, so it's, it honest to goodness depends on if you, are, if you really want to say, they're hard people to, to help, but it, it's, so it, it's, if, it, if they're not gonna come back, maybe send them to somebody else. Um, so whenever they're like, you know what, I, I don't think we're gonna be able to, I'm not gonna be able to help you, but I'm gonna send you to, and if, Obviously, if there's somebody in town you don't like, that's where you send them. But, but more, there's often somebody who sort of enjoys working with these kinds of people like I do, all right? But so, all right, let's have our other volunteer come back in and I'll show you the way that I usually actually approach it. <laughs> come on, it's not that bad. All right, so you get the mic, you get that mic. And it's, okay, Catherine. All right, so. Hi, Catherine, I'm Dr. Zyrus. Hi. Good to meet you. So what brings you into the office today? Um, I've just got a lot of itching. Okay, what, where on your body is the itching? Um, hands sometimes around my face. Okay, and anything seemed to make it worse? Uh, well, I went to Florida recently. Okay, do you, did it, so did you, was it the sun you think in Florida that made it worse? I, I don't know, I, there were a few things, you know, I was hiking and you know, okay. I don't know what, which thing it was, but. Okay, um, and so it, it, you know, a lot of patients like you um, who have this rash think that it's related to the sun. Um, and you know, I've seen a lot of patients, and it, it's interesting. We really um, don't know a lot about it. Um, what exactly is causing it? Nobody's been able to, to figure out to tell you the truth. Um, I know that a lot of the things that I've used to treat it that, and that patients have really wanted me to use where we're sort of targeting the sun, um, you know, whether it's sunscreens or things like that, just, don't, just really don't seem to work, and, and we don't know much about it. Um, but I do know that there's a pill that I've had a lot of success with patients in making them feel a lot better with this. Um, and, okay, so that, that's it. You actually did a great job, about, and we're gonna talk about why. Okay, so you, we're at, this is delusions of parasitosis that we're talking about, all right? So now, all right, you can go sit down now, yes. All right, so, and she's a perfect example of something. So when we talk about delusions of parasitosis, my classification system, all right, is this. So number one, 
They think there are bugs because they feel something like bugs on their skin, but they really don't have much of a story. So they come in, oh, I'm itchy, I think I'm being bit by bugs, blah, 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 um, seem totally normal, okay? And, and you say, well, why do you think, so tell me about the bugs. Well, I, I, I don't know, it just feels like there's bugs biting me, but I, I've never seen any of the bugs or anything else. And so she was a great example of somebody like that who's not attached to this has to be the sun, okay? It's just, a, it seems like it. So those people are a piece of cake, okay? Nope, it's not bugs that are doing this. It's something called, it's an abnormal sensation. The nerve endings in your skin aren't working right. It's called formication with an M, not an N, right? Feels like bugs on your skin. We're going to be able to treat you and help get that better. Okay, grade two, 100% certain there are bugs on their skin and have a great story to go with it. But they seem totally normal. They've got a good job. Um, they're well-spoken. You know, they're normal people, except for, and they're embarrassed. They're often a little embarrassed about the bugs. But I have, I have these, these but the one that I've got now that I'm working with, um, the bugs are in her hair. Um, you know, I've got these bugs in my hair and I don't know what to, you know, and it's, uh, and, with those are the people who you really can approach it two different ways. So as I said, if you don't want them to come back, you argue with them about the bugs don't really exist. If you really do want to try and help them, you take the, the approach that is actually correct. So technically, we do not know that there are no bugs that exist that do this, all right? And that's because there's no way to ever prove a negative, right? So it's, you know, maybe there are bugs that are made out of antimatter, I don't know, right? It, are there bugs? No, there's not. But can we honestly prove that there are no bugs? No, we can't prove that. And so to them, I take the approach of, you know, I've seen a lot of people like you, and I know that this is just driving you absolutely just crazy. I shouldn't use that word, but I got <laughs> stuck in that phrase. I know that this is just awful. It's ruining your life. Um, and I've had a lot of patients like you. And here's, here's the problem. I, I, know that, you know, I've had patients bring the bugs in and I've sent them to an, the entomologist here at Ohio State. And if there is a, a bug that's doing this, it's not one that, that medical science has been able to identify yet. And so it's, it's I, I just don't, if we're going to try and treat the bugs, I don't have a way to get you better. I just, I, I can't, I, they might be there, but I can't get you better. I, I don't, we don't have anything that works against them. Now, on the other hand, I have had a lot of success with patients who have the same thing as you um, with a pill that will make you much less aware of the bugs, so they, they, of the bugs that you feel. And so if they're there, this pill will make, them, will make it much less of a problem for you. Um, you know, I would just like you to try it. Um, I want you to take it for a month and then come back to see me. If you're no better, then we can, you know, we can, we can try and find something else to do, but it's, it's worth a shot, because I know this is ruining your life, and I've had so many patients who this has just really helped dramatically. Um, and so that's the, and, and some of them are just so, like you just can't. I won't spend like an hour being like, you know, going on with this whole thing. But if you can get, if they have just that shred of insight where they're willing to accept so, and the usual response is, but I have these bugs. We've got to get rid of the bugs. We've got to kill the bugs. And I stick to the, and I don't stick to there are no bugs. I stick to we don't have any way to kill the bug. If there are bugs, we don't have any way to kill them. I've tried all the medications. I've tried the topicals that are used for, for bugs. I've had patients, you know, apply things to their skin that are very toxic and damaging. That's not going to help. 
We just don't have a, we don't have a way to get rid of them if they're there. I, I don't know for sure if they're if they're there or not, but we don't have a way to get rid of them if they are. Um, and so you just stick with that. Do not stick with there's no bugs. Stick with if there are bugs, we can't kill them. Okay. And then you've got your grade three, which are just crazy. All right. And you, and you get some of these. The last one of these that I had was a guy who came in wearing a baseball hat with birds. With he had torn the wings off of a bird, like an actual live bird and had taped them to the brim of his baseball hat. And this was to protect him from the bugs were being sent to him in the competitive gardening magazines that his main competitors in English topiary preparation were trying to make sure he didn't win the next competition. All right, so, and when they're just crazy like that, you can't, you know, you're not gonna, all right, so what do we do with these? Depends on the grade. Stage one, really easy, not really delusional. You, you can get, you know, uh, topicals will work uh, to, to relieve it some. The anti-epileptics will, will often be very effective for those people. Stage two, do not tell them that the bugs don't exist, right, no matter what. Just think of it as if somebody trying to convince you, honest to God, that the sun does not exist. You will never in a million years believe it. And think about it from their perspective as well. If they get online and, and type in bugs, bugs on my skin, are they going to find websites that say, no, this is delusions of parasitosis, it's a common medical thing, dermatologists have been studying it for years, you, you need help, this is more of a sensation. No, they're going to find websites that say, yes, there are bugs on your skin, doctors don't believe you, doctors think you're crazy, don't listen to doctors, you need treated for the bugs. They're going to find plenty of reinforcement, just like our you know, volunteers, if they went and got online and you know, typed in the sun, they're going to find lots of websites to tell them all about the sun, right? So they, they, there's lots of reinforcement, but you don't tell them that the bugs do exist. You just tell them that, you, you know, we don't know. Medical science hasn't found a way to identify the bugs if they're there. You're not saying that there are there. You're saying I, you don't know, but you know that medical science doesn't have a way to, to identify them. You've never seen or read about a case where, where bugs were proven, but medical science is advancing, so we may down the road, down the road find out that there are bugs, okay? You don't know if there are bugs, but you know there are treatments directed at treating the itching. And I usually will mention pimazide. Um, now, it depends on how, you know, if, they, if they're right with me, I will on the first visit be like, you want to try the pill. A lot of times, though, I will, you know, talk about, okay, there's this medication, pimazide. Does anybody know why pimazide is the one that, that has been used for this? Historically, probably why it got picked. So, do you know what pimazide is, a, it's a, what it's approved for? So this, it's, this sounds ridiculous, but this is honest to God true. It's a proof for treating ticks of Tourette's syndrome. But probably that is why somebody decided to try it for delusions of parasitosis, because ticks are bugs. And so it was a reasonable, <laughs> right? And so I usually will focus on, on, not that it's for treating ticks, but that it's for treating Tourette's syndrome. So not schizophrenia, not crazy people, it's for treating Tourette's syndrome. Um, and, and, you know, I don't talk about side effects. All right, so, and, and so then whenever they leave my office, the, ex, you know, the thing is, if you want to try the medication, come back. If you want to talk about it more, come back. Otherwise, there's not a whole lot I can do for you. Um, I tell them it's usually used for schizophrenia or Tourette's. Um, they obviously don't have that. Um, I don't tell them about side effects. And we're using such a low dose, the chances of them getting any significant side effects are close to zero. And so I, I and this is, is sort of called, the, the term that the psychiatrists use for this is therapeutic privilege, where you've got somebody you know that putting them on this medication will help them, 
but they're not making rational decisions. So that if you tell them about the side effects, it'll give them a reason not to take it. So I do not, now once they're better, so when they come back in a month and the bugs are much less of an issue, and usually they'll be like, yeah, they're still, oh, I don't know, the, you know, it's just not, it's a lot better. And they just don't have such a desire to talk about the bugs or anything else. At that point, I might be like, okay, great, we're gonna keep you on this medication for at least the next six months. We do need to send you to get an EKG uh, with your primary care doctor. It's a totally safe medication. We just gotta make sure that you're, you don't have any problems with your heart to start with, but it's not gonna cause any problems. Um, one milligram twice a day, come back in a month, and they believe the bugs are still there, but they just don't care anymore. All right, I do ask about a history of arrhythmia heart disease, so gently because I, I don't wanna, you know, have you ever had any heart problems? No, okay, fine. Um, akathisia, which is restless body, akinesia, you can't move very well, uh, and neutropenia, all very rare at the dose that we're using, and I'm totally comfortable giving it to them for a month, and then whenever they come back, starting to, to, work, to think about the side effects. In stage three, the crazy people, they have socioeconomic distress at a major level. So I, I don't try to treat them. I try and communicate with their social worker. They're, most of these people for me have been, you know, they're living in a group home. Um, they're institutionalized. They have a social worker. They have a psychiatrist. And mainly for me, it's educating the social worker and the psychiatrist that there's, no, there's nothing infesting their skin. There's nothing like that. This is a manifestation of their mental illness, and they're doing this to their own skin. Um, and so educating them, their other mental health providers, about it. So it, I, I don't try and do pimazide or anything else in the people who are, who are truly um, you know, um, crazy. So, and then Morgellons, so how many people here know, have heard about Morgellons? Okay, so, so vast majority. You look it up on Wikipedia, I actually knew, I'd like to tell this story, patient zero. Um, so Mary Latow um, brought her son to the resident clinic whenever I was at the University of Pittsburgh. The attending I was working with, um, hated to have confrontation with patients or tell them anything they didn't want to hear. So she said, my son has these fibers on his skin and we don't know what to do and blah, blah, blah. He said, well, let me see a sample of that. We, you know, took it and we looked at it under the microscope like you always do. He came back in the room and said, I've never seen anything like those fibers before. I have no idea what this is, but we're gonna, we're gonna help you get to the bottom of this. And then he walked out of the room and said to the resident, delusions of parasitosis, you know, uh, we, you know, talk to her. And the resident was kind of like, well, uh, you know, and so she walked out saying, oh my God, the doctor just told me this is real, but they don't care, they're not doing anything about it, what am I gonna do? And so then she went on to, to start the Morgellon Society and get the CDC involved and everything else. Um, and what's different about this with delusions of parasitosis is it's, they don't believe it's bugs, they believe it's fibers. So it's better thought of as delusions of fibrocytosis. Um, and this is stage two disease, but with a much worse prognosis because there's so much support for them. There's so much reinforcement of, yes, you do have this. Doctors think you're crazy. Doctors won't listen to you. Um, this is real. Here we have electron micrographs of these fibers. You know, so that's why it's worse than delusions of parasitosis because anybody can find a fiber on their skin, right? You can't be like, no, there are no fibers on your skin, especially once you scratch and then get a little bit of serosanguinous weeping that then dries, the fibers stick to it. I mean, so that's why the prognosis is so bad. It's obviously there are fibers on their skin. Um, so it makes it much harder to get them to take therapy. But all right, that's it. Thank you, guys.